and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. This is our first episode of 2022. So I'm going to wish you a happy new year, even though it's a little delayed to say happy new year. We took a month off and, you know, for the podcast, I have often just ripped and run and and gone and gone and gone for over five years now. This is year six of the podcast. I just decided, hey, it'd be nice to have a break. So hopefully you didn't mind our month-long break. We have a catalog, I think, of over 260 episodes now. So you could go back, you could re-listen. Hopefully you didn't miss us too much. Um, But I'm really excited to be back on the podcast. We've got a bunch of great guests lined up for 2022. Uh, just really excited to continue learning from these intentional performers. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit more about myself. So I work as an executive coach where I get to work with incredible leaders in the corporate world. And I also work as a mental performance coach where I work with athletes and sports teams. And I founded a company that's called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe labeling competencies as soft like teamwork, communication, leadership, emotional intelligence, curiosity, anything around mindset. When you label them as soft, it actually devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we are really passionate about teaching is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020, which seems like decades ago, but it actually wasn't that long ago. And it's amazing how many people continue to read the book and and be interested in the book. And it's really been incredible hearing from a lot of the listeners of this podcast about how they like to listen to the book via Audible or that they've picked up the book. You can pick it up anywhere books are sold. It could be at Amazon or uh, online in a bunch of different retailers. But it has been amazing to hear about how people are learning from the book. They're learning from the podcast. So the more that we can share intentional performers, we can share people that are able to shift their mind. I think the better we can all perform. I think we can show up in a more real and authentic way and also pull on the sides of 
of us that are inside of us already and we have in us, but we just need to think about when we are using different qualities that we bring to the table. So thanks to all of you who have already purchased the book. And once again, I appreciate the support. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand the reach of the podcast. And thanks to all of you who have already done so and continue to listen to these intentional performers and support the podcast. Now to today's guest. April Dunford is the world's leading expert on product positioning. And to be honest, I didn't even know what positioning was until I got turned on to April's work. So what does she do? She works with fast-growing tech companies and she helps them clearly articulate the value they alone can deliver to their customers. She's the author of the best-selling positioning book, Obviously Awesome, which I recommend you check out. And that book is all about how to nail product positioning so customers get it, buy it, and love it. And for me personally, I'm somebody who I haven't really thought a lot about my positioning. Yes, I've gone through a branding exercise, which I will talk about in this conversation today, but I often just go toward things that energize me, that I'm curious about, that I enjoy learning about. So with the podcast, we've taken a broad approach. With the book, we, we, we wrote it with a broad audience in mind. With my newsletter that comes out every week, it's pretty broad. So I'm going to talk to April personally about how I think about positioning, and she's going to share some of her best practices and how she thinks about positioning and how she helps organizations and companies thrive based on their positioning. One note, while this is not a tech podcast, this is not a sales podcast, I do think We can all learn from April as we think about our own personal positioning or whatever positioning we need to think about in our business. So hopefully you'll bring that frame of reference and that lens into this conversation today. I also think you're just going to love April's personality. She's lighthearted. She brings humor to the forefront and it's clear right from the get-go that she knows her stuff when it comes to positioning. So let's fire it up and listen to April done for. April, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Shout out to Joe Ferraro for connecting us. He has a wonderful podcast as well. I listened to your conversation with Joe. It was fantastic. Where I wanted to start with you is you've worn a lot of different hats, Uh, mentor, manager, board member, speaker, investor, consultant, author. I haven't even gone personal um, with, with family life, but professionally, there's a lot of different hats that you've worn. And then I think you majored in engineering. That's, that's old age, Brian. That, that's, that's just what age and experience. <laughs> but with that age, I'm curious. And with that experience, <laughs> which of those hats do you really feel most alive? Well, uh, you know, I don't know. Like, it's funny when, when people ask me, like, what are you? I still say I'm a product marketer, which is a very specific discipline within marketing where, you know, you're, you're sort of product oriented and you're kind of the glue in between marketing sales and product. And I feel like that's really what I am. Like, that's where I started. It hasn't actually changed that much. The work I do now is positioning, which is very much considered a product marketing thing, um, but yeah, but along the way, you know, sometimes I'm the product marketer that sits on the board. Sometimes I'm the product marketer that wrote you a check. <laughs> but, but do you so, find that one of those really gives you a lot of fulfillment or energy? Even before we started recording, you said, ah, I was in 
I went away for a little bit over the holidays and I've been thinking and writing. Yeah. Is there one place, whether it's writing or speaking or consulting or mentoring that you really feel like, gosh, I feel most alive in that space? Yeah. You know, I, I do think that my, my calling maybe is more as a teacher than anything else. Like, um, you know, I started out as a, as an employee, you know, an individual contributor, and then I was a manager and then I was an executive. And then, like you say, I'm an author and I sit on boards and all things like that. But in the work I'm doing right now as a consultant, really my job is teaching. So really what I'm trying to do is teach people how to do a better job of positioning. And I think that's my calling. Like, I think that's the thing I do better. Like, you know, I spent a lot of years as a manager and a mentor, and I don't know if management was really my jam. (laughs) It's interesting because a lot of people, and we're going to talk about sales a little bit in this conversation, the obvious transition that we see over and over again in business is you're good at sales. Now go be a sales manager. You're an individual contributor. Now be a manager. For you, you mentioned that you were an individual contributor and then probably got promoted to become a manager. What was that transition like for you? And what did you learn going through it? Well, you know, I, I was lucky in that I had a really good manager myself when I first made the transition. Like I had a few years where I was managing, but I wasn't really an executive. And I don't think I was a very good manager. Like I was kind of just fumbling my way through it. And then eventually I ended up at IBM. And so a couple of things about IBM. One, if you're a manager at IBM, they send you to manager school. Like they just, you know, they don't assume that you know anything about management until they've taught it to you, which is a good assumption. (laughs) It's a very good assumption. I didn't. (laughs) And so I went to manager school and then I also had, um, you know, a boss who was very, very good at this stuff. And so the biggest thing that I struggled with when I first became a manager was, um, you know, I think I fundamentally misunderstood the job. So I thought my job was, you know, I understood that my job was to kind of give the team direction and help the team pull together and set goals and things like that. But I, what I really didn't understand was that I, I really had to stop doing stuff. (laughs) And that was the big thing my boss kept coaching me on. He kept saying, look, like, are you just going to be a doer? for the rest of your life. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a doer. <laughs> like, are you telling me do, being a doer is bad? And he's like, you're not a doer anymore. You're not going to do stuff. Your job is not to do the work. That's not your job anymore. And so we used to have these long conversations and coming from startups, I think you're not allowed to say that. And in fact, in, in startups, that's seen as a really bad attitude. If you came in and said, look, I'm an executive. I don't do stuff. <laughs> But if you you were working at a place like IBM, I'm a senior executive. I've got hundreds of people underneath me. Like I got more than enough people to do stuff. You know, what we don't have people focused on is getting the roadblocks out of the way for those folks, making sure those folks have what they need to get their stuff done, making sure I'm advocating for their work so that it gets recognized and gets used properly and all that other stuff, um, which is not doing the job it's doing it's it is doing something but it's a different job (laughs) it's really challenging for a lot of people april because they have gotten to where they're at by doing stuff and being a high contributor and right now you tell them hey 
stop working in the business. We now need you to work on the business. business. And that transition is brutal for people. And a lot of them don't find it all that fulfilling because they're not winning. They're not actually getting those quote unquote wins. And they feel often as if they're now devaluing themselves because they're actually less valuable because they're not actually doing the winning. But what the company needs is for them to empower all the other people in their team. Right. What do you get from teaching that you weren't getting in that managerial position at a place like IBM? I think of IBM. I think of Google. I think of Microsoft. I think right. of Facebook now or Meta or whatever they call it. These are places <laughs> that people have a hard time leaving because they often pay well. They give you security. They give you some autonomy. And um, but but what are you getting from teaching that you weren't getting from you know being in that position there? Yeah. So so. There were a handful of things like like one the reason i left ibm in a nutshell even though i had a pretty good job there and they did they and they pay great um and but what i i felt like all i did was worry about internal stuff and we never actually talked about customers <laughs> like i felt like i was very disconnected from the actual business that i was so deep into the it, you know, and it's unfair to call it politics, but it felt like all I did was politics. Like all I did was making sure this vice president and that vice president understood this thing so we could get the budget to do this other thing and whatever, whatever. And it was all internal. Like all I ever did was worry about what other executives were doing. And it started driving me crazy. It was so meta. <laughs> it didn't feel like I felt detached from the business of there are customers with problems and we make solutions to help solve those problems. I felt completely disconnected from that. And instead what I was doing was, you know, I was inside doing this, trying to get budget and trying to get more headcount, trying to get in. And anyways, that drove me crazy. Um, so, you know, when I left IBM, I went back to working at small companies and the small companies, you're a lot closer to that. Um, but what I really like about the work that I'm doing now is, um, it's interesting because I'm not, I'm as a teacher, you're not the doer either. (laughs) So it's not like I went back to the straight doing thing. And most of the consulting that I do, uh, it's positioning work, but I don't do the positioning for you. What I'm doing is I'm a teacher and I'm a facilitator. So I'm teaching the, the team and facilitating the team to come up with the answers themselves. And so it's kind of like this neat best of both worlds thing in that I'm still there in a kind of an executive function. I'm there as an expert. I'm there as a person that really deeply understands the process, but, but, you know, but without all of that, like quote unquote politics, (laughs) I guess. In fact, I'm there to kind of break that down. I'm there to like, let's, let's just have everybody in the same room and let's talk about stuff and let's get it all on the floor because maybe why you're not making any progress is because, you know, people are scared to say stuff in front of the CEO or people or whatever. And I'm there as the outside person where I can cut through a lot of that stuff. Um, the other thing I really like about it is that, you know, when we're doing positioning work, we are very, very focused on customers, problems, solutions, how do we actually tell the story of this product in a way that really helps customers make a good purchase decision? And so 
so it kind of combines, it's sort of a, the work that I'm doing as a consultant feels like a best of all worlds for me in that, you know, it's the fun stuff that I like to do. It's, it's, uh, positioning has always been a place where I have deep expertise. I've been doing that for a long time. I know a lot about that stuff. And then, you know, I get to come in as an expert, but not do the stuff for you is to kind of lead you on a path to figuring out how to do it yourself. And it's super satisfying work at the end, because it feels like we're making a big impact to the business and to customers and, you know, to stuff that's real and not just, I don't know, internal political stuff. What do you miss? <laughs> so it's clear what you don't miss about being at a place like that, but is there anything, let's say I was at IBM, I've been there for 10 years, which I'm not, they would never hire someone like me with my background. Maybe they Oh, would. come on. They, actually, it's <laughs> not true. They do hire people that are coaches they do. They to do. go train people like you and help you. Um, yeah. but, but let's say I've been there for 10 years, you know, and I'm thinking, hey, I'm going to make the jump and I'm going to go off on my own and I want to be you, April. What do they not see? What are the parts that they don't know? Oh, well, you know, I don't, you know, that's a hard one. Like there, there's a thing about big companies that when you're inside a big company, um, it, you have to fight really hard to get a promotion because there's a lot of people and a lot of people want a promotion. So you have to fight really hard to move your way up. Um, you have to fight really hard to be taken seriously. You have to fight really hard to establish your reputation inside the company. And all of that takes time. Like I had a person, a very senior guy that I worked with once. And after I'd been at IBM for five years, he came up to me and we were having a disagreement about something in a meeting. And, and after the meeting, he came up to me and he said, look, how long have you been here? And, and I said, I've been here five years. And I said that thinking, well, you know, he thinks I've just showed up here yesterday. I've been here five years. And I said, I've been here five years. And the guy laughed at me and he said, look, here's how this works. You don't know anything until you've been here 10. <laughs> you know, nothing, nothing. So imagine you've been there 10, like you've invested a lot into getting to this spot where people are finally taking you seriously. They're not laughing at you in the hall and saying, ha ha noob, you've only been here five years. And you know, and you're making great money and you've had to fight to get to this spot. I think it's really hard for a lot of people that are 10 years into, and I hear the same thing from people that are Google, people that are Facebook. Like, I think it's hard to then, to then sort of break out of that and say, you know what, I, I'm going to go do something else. And I just have other things. Like you've been on this, this, this treadmill, this fight of trying to get up and get taken seriously and get all the money and secure the bag, <laughs> like all of it. And then I think it's hard for you to just say, no, I'm, I'm walking away from this fight now. I'm going to go do something else. I, I, that was my experience is when I was at IBM, I was like, I had someone in HR tell me you either quit after two years or you never quit. And uh, yeah, I can see how that happened. But for me, I had a, had a whole career before I came to IBM. Like I came into IBM when, you know, sort of mid-career, which again is quite unusual. Most people start junior and work their way up. But I had come in kind of mid-career. I had done other things. Like I was fighting my way up the chain like everybody else, but I knew there was a world outside. <laughs> 
where you, think, you know is you that is that things. what you think allowed you to leave or was there something even prior yeah. to that from your upbringing or your childhood that allowed you to say hey I, I can walk away from this and i'll be okay like what what do you think contributed to your ability or capacity to say hey i'm going to go in a different direction yeah it was it was a combination of things i think mainly it was that you know i knew there was a world out there i was going to be able to go out and do i knew what it was like working at a small company and i was good at it i could walk out of there and get a job at a small company a lot of people at these big companies they, you know they get 10 years in they get worried they can't work anywhere else which is wrong but uh, but anyways i knew that wasn't true the other thing was you know, I also left, like if everything had been fantastic at IBM, I, maybe I would have stayed. But I also left because the work just wasn't doing it for me. Um, I wasn't super happy. The job I had was really, again, very political, very internal facing. Like I missed working with customers. I missed working on the, you know, on the actual business instead of the business of the business. Gosh. And then uh, and then I had the world's worst boss, like honest to God, like the, like. <laughs> Like the worst boss of my entire career um, what was my last boss. What qualities did that worst boss have? Yeah, he was he was really um, he had be, been very successful at uh, because he was very good at working the internal IBM politics, which you would have you have to be. But he did it in a way, and I saw people do that that were very skilled at that um, that I thought were great managers. But then there were some people like this guy who were, uh, he would, he would actually pit people on his own team against each other. <laughs> I never saw anything like it. Like people on his own team, like they're in his division. Like, like I saw him do a meeting with his head of marketing and his head of development. And the head of marketing said, let me get clear on the goal. The goal is X, right? Like we need to do X. And and he would say, of course it is, you know, in front of these two executives. And then the head of marketing would leave and then he'd lean over to the head of development and say, look, the goal is really Y. <laughs> We're just saying X to get that guy out of the office. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Are we allowed to do this? <laughs> Why would we do this? And again, I, I felt that I, IBM and I, again, I think these big companies, there's kind of this political stuff that's happening inside and then there's the business and and I think sometimes the two things get really disconnected but anyways this guy was was that he was really good at that I guess and so sitting with him and watching him work kind of demotivated me I was a bit like so this is what I'm going to be when I grow up this <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> by looking politics, at my crystal ball 10 years from now this is what I'm doing to get ahead in this I don't place be, no, I don't, I don't think so yeah, politics is is fascinating because we tend to think of it in a negative way. And you, I'm based in Washington D.C. We think of politics even in a different realm. Um, but you need, to your point, like you, if you're in a big organization, you need to learn how to say things a certain way, and you need to know a, the game that is being played. And so it's not inherently influence is a big deal, right? Yeah, you need, to, you need to influence people that don't work for you and don't have to do what you say and don't, you know. Reputation, influence, it's part All of leadership. It is. So, but it's interesting what was wrong on his accord was that he was lying. He was probably playing games. And when you start cool. to do that stuff, that's where you lose people and you lose trust. And so it's interesting as you, as you think about leadership, I want to go to, I'm 
when I asked you, hey, what, what would you want to lean into today? What would you want to talk about? You said, I've been thinking a lot about sales and the intersection yeah. of marketing and sales. And you've sort of been more in this marketing space, but you also have experience with sales. And so I'm going to share a story with you that I, I don't think I've talked about in on the podcast before, but my first oh, job out of college, yeah, my first job out of college was selling condos. And so I was a sales assistant, which essentially meant I was working at a desk. People would come in, I'd greet them. I'd say, can I get you a Coke? I uh, would grab them a Coke. And then maybe I'd give them a tour to show them some model condos. And I'll never forget this. One day I'm, I'm there and then my job would be to then give them to the sales associate. And that person would be the one that would actually sell them on a place. But I was just a door opener, answer the phone, put things into a spreadsheet, very basic stuff, an assistant. And so I'll never forget this. They're working on a March Madness marketing campaign to try to get people into the condominiums. And so the idea was that they were going to get TVs and for the NCAA basketball tournament, they would have TVs and wings and beer and all this stuff to get people <laughs> to come in to the condos and then they would sell them on the condos. And so they're working on this big marketing proposal and someone walks in the, the door and is interested in a condo. And so they're like, all right, Brian, show them around. And I'm like, great. So I show the person around and they're really interested in a condo. And so I go to the sales associate. I go, all right, let's call him Sally. Sally's interested in a condo, a one bedroom condo. Um, yeah. you know, she liked the third floor and here you go. And they go, you know what? We're working on this marketing proposal right now. Why don't you take her information and we'll get back in touch with her? What? And we've that lost was my response. <laughs> response. I was like, what are you working on the marketing thing for? We've got someone who's interested. They're in the condo. And so I give oh you gosh. that example because when you said to me, hey, I'm trying to think about how we can intersect these two and rather than leave these siloed, how do we get marketing and sales working together? That was example A, where I was just kind of like, these shouldn't be siloed. <laughs> like these should be in, 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 in conjunction. This is, an awesome, this is an awesome example though, it's because example. it does kind of typify what we see a bit in marketing is that, you know, <laughs> when I started in marketing, things were really different. Like when I first started, which is, you know, 20 some odd years ago, um, we were really into branding. Like, you know, a lot of when you talked about marketing, it wasn't so much about generating leads or, you know, generating business. It was about, you know, we want to, we want the, we want the brand to be out there and we're going to magically make people feel something about us. And that feeling will somehow convert into sales. <laughs> And we can't measure it, you know, we don't really know it, but, you know, but we'll know when sales are good, that the feeling was good. And so I have an engineering background and that always bugged me. So I was like, I don't know, I don't know how to measure these feelings. And, you know, and we, so we were running big ads and things that we couldn't track and we didn't know what was going hey, on. Hey, April, so, real quick, just to fill in the gap. How did yeah. you move from engineering to marketing? Yeah, I know it's a weird story. So I, I actually got a job at a startup. Um, and we were, a, we had a super technical product. So we were selling databases to database administrators and I got a job as a product marketer. So technically marketing, but really my job was the, the main thing of that job was I had to be able to demo a database to a prospect. And in order to do that, you need to know, you needed to know how to write SQL queries and talk some database stuff. <laughs> 
So I was fresh out of engineering school and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And, um, and my friend was working at this startup at the time and, and they had this open job for a product marketer. And the requirement was needs to know SQL and isn't afraid of public speaking. <laughs> so I ticked the boxes and that's how I got that job. And then that company eventually um, was acquired by a big database company in Silicon Valley and my boss at the time, right after the acquisition, my boss left and I was standing in the right hall at the right time. And they made me the vice president of marketing. And I was two years out of engineering school. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Couldn't even spell marketing, man. And they, you know, and they give it this big team and a great big budget. And I just kind of dug in and figured it out. <laughs> and after that, I was like, this is my jam. This is what I do now. What did marketing give you? What did you, why was it your jam instead of the engineering stuff? Uh, I don't know. I just decided I was was good at it. Like um, I had a big team and thankfully everybody on my team was really smart and amazing. uh, So I learned a lot from them, but um, you know, we grew, we tripled the business in two years and, you know, we started out as this dinky little thing that had just been acquired by a great big company, but we became the growth engine of the business. And so I thought, hey, I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> I should just do this. And <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> yeah, you, so I like that there was, you know, there was the satisfaction of being able to drive stuff, like to see the results. Like, unlike this branding stuff I was doing before, where it was like, we're going to run some ads and who knows whether things work or not. At the new company I was at, we were very into lead generation. So it was all about the numbers. So I could tell you, you know, if you put a dollar in, $3 comes out the other end. Let me show you how that works. And I could give you the spreadsheet to show you how, how to make that happen. And that felt like a little bit of magic to me. I was like, oh, this is this is what I was actually made if, to do. If so, I were yeah. to connect dots between what you're saying and what I read in your book, you like to win and you like to make an impact and help things get to the yeah. finish line and, and to be successful. And so the engineering background makes sense because I'm going to actually be the one creating the hard products and I'm going to have the knowledge of how things work, but then you figure out a way to see how the marketing could actually lead to whatever X and lead to multiples and lead to sales. Um, and right. almost it's, it sounds as if you could be this bridge between the two and really create value for the company. And that, that sounds like it gave you a lot of fulfillment. Yeah, it did. It was a good time. So let's go back to the sales and marketing. So you're in the office with me and you've got these people who are sales associates and they're saying, you know, let's create a March Madness marketing plan. But I'm like, hey, let's sell the condo. Um, So what what are you seeing as it relates to marketing and sales? And why are you excited to maybe dive deeper into the world of sales? Yeah. So so here's the thing. Like we... We do treat, it's funny because the the entire, my entire career, I feel like we've been talking about, you know, sales and marketing alignment. That's just a thing we talk about uh, and on the marketing side and, um, and we've always had problems with it and all the companies I've worked with where, you know, marketing is generating leads. So they have a very distinct set of things going on. So we're running some ads and we're building content and we've got campaigns running and we're doing things to get customers interested in our stuff and then if we're if we're if we sell b2b eventually what happens is we get this person becomes a lead where it's like yes i would like to buy something please can i talk to your sales rep (laughs) and then we heave them over to sales and then mysterious things happen in sales like we're on the marketing side and we're like 
Well, sales is over there selling them, doing their sales things. And we don't necessarily know what that is. And then you go over to the sales side of the house and, and things are really different. Like they have sales methodologies that generally the marketers don't know about. Um, they're moving customers through a sales process, which includes trying to qualify them, trying to make sure they're a good fit for the product, trying to convince them that they should buy, and then you know negotiating an actual deal and then getting the deal done. And what was really interesting to me is, is how little that connected with what we were doing in marketing. So a lot of what we were doing in marketing was really focused on messaging and positioning. So why should you pick us versus all the other options you have? Like, what's our differentiator? What makes us different and better than the other options you have out there? And then we would throw it over to sales. And sales kind of didn't do that. You would think that that's what sales would be doing. But instead, what happened a lot in sales is it would go over to sales and sales would do these meetings. And the meetings would start with, well, so what's your problems? Tell us your problems. And, you know, and the customer would say some stuff and then they'd say, okay, well, now we're going to show you a demo um, that shows you how we're going to solve those problems. And that didn't sit right with me. <laughs> like mainly because we had built marketing and positioning based on what we understood about the customer's problems and how we could solve it. Right. And not any problem because our, our product only does a certain set of things. We actually don't solve any problem. We solve a very specific set of problems for a very specific kind of customer. But sales was kind of acting like we could solve any problem for any customer. Well, let's let's go all the way back to the beginning and let's talk about your problems. Right. You feel like you opened the door for them and now they just have to put the ball in the hoop like it slam dunk. There, It's done. Uh, but they're starting with asking questions, probing. They're going all the way back, back to whatever. And so one of the things that I was thinking about, because we were talking about this before we started, but one of the things I was thinking about on vacation was um, like, how do we actually get that alignment between marketing and sales? Like generally sales doesn't, they understand the product. They may not really understand the positioning of the product in the market. And that's generally because they're not involved in creating that positioning because marketing's doing that or marketing and the CEO is doing that. But, but sales is usually not actually involved in it because they're not involved in it. They're not actually reflecting that positioning in the conversations they're having with customers. And so in the work I do with positioning, we're always, we always have sales in the room in, in particular, the sales executives, because if they don't understand this positioning, then it's not going to get reflected in the way they talk to customers. That's the first thing. The second thing I was thinking about is um, like, how do we actually build a good sales pitch? And so I've spent the last year, I would say, kind of doing a deep dive through the, the state of the art in sales literature. So um, a lot of salespeople I work with will say, well, we, you know, we're using a certain sales methodology. And so there's a lot of books out there about sales methodologies. When you do the dig through this, which I didn't, you know, I had, I had known about sales methodologies back when I was a VP uh, at some bigger companies, because we would, we would use one of those methodologies, but I hadn't really looked at it in the last few years. Turns out it hasn't changed all that much. 
And a lot of these sales methodologies um, skip the part where you're building a sales pitch. And they get right to how do I negotiate with a customer to get them to a closed deal? But there's nothing in most of these sales methodologies that talks about how do I position the product so that the customer can understand it so that they want to buy it. <laughs> and they kind of skip that part. Like there's this idea that this pitch is a given, it's known already. And so, of course, you have a good pitch with a good product that's well positioned in the market. Here's how you actually move a deal forward. And so I think with the, the thought I was having while I was on vacation is, how do we take positioning, like assuming we can get to good positioning, which is a lot of the work that I've been focused on, but how do we take that positioning and translate it into a sales pitch that really works for the sales team? And if we can't do that, then, then we're in big trouble. Mm, I love it. I had on a guy by the name Ron of Ron Shapiro. Ron was a sports agent, a baseball agent, mm. and then started a negotiation institute. So it's called the Shapiro Negotiation Institute. And Ron's written a bunch of books. And one of his books is called Perfecting Your Pitch. And mm. in Perfecting Your Pitch, he talks about the three Ps and positioning. Maybe there's a fourth P. Um, but he talks about preparation, probing, then proposing. Right. And what he says is a lot of times in negotiation, people forget to probe. So they'll prepare and then they'll say, all right, I have the solution. We're going to propose. And in your book, you talk a lot about this as well. Like, no, you need to continue to find out what the problem is. What are your competitors? What's out there? And you need to continue to probe and stay curious. And he says that that middle part of probing is something that we often forget to do when we're negotiating. And so you might not even propose in your first negotiation. You probably shouldn't. You should just probe, gather as much information, and then figure out how you can get the other people what they want and what their needs are. And when right. you can do that, then you can propose something that allows for both people to win. That's negotiation a little different than sales. Yeah. But there, there might be something in that book that would be helpful for you as you can. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to pick it up. Explore. Like what I, what I see, like a lot of the work that I do is I'm working with software companies, right? So the thing we've got in software products is it's not like selling professional services or something custom. Like the, the product has a set of things that it does and a whole lot of things it doesn't. <laughs> and so while I agree that we need to do a lot of probing, we need to, you know, we need to make sure that we're connecting with the customer and that our assumptions about the customer are correct. Um, at the same time, I think we need to be a kind of ruthless about, is this a good fit for us or not? Mm -hmm. And if it's not, we should not try to sell people on it. Right. We should so move on to folks that are a good fit. <laughs> teaching salespeople to say that this isn't going to be a good client for you because they're going to it, fail. It's going to fail. That's right. It's going to fail. You're going to spend a lot of time. You might even get so far as to actually close the initial deal, but then they'll churn on you later and they won't renew with you. And the thing with most software we sell now is on a subscription. So uh, we don't actually make our money unless they've renewed that subscription for two or three years in the future. So it, it doesn't do us any favors to land the initial deal, spend all the effort and money on marketing and selling that deal and then have them churn out six months later because it actually wasn't a very good fit for them at all. What do you think so, the reason is? Do you think it's that they, if I'm in sales, I'm drawn to the close, I'm drawn to the feeling yeah. of winning and I just want to try to find a way to, to, and I get that because I'm, I'm kind of wired like that. Like there are times 
even like getting podcast guests where I'm like, no, I just want to get the podcast. And then I think about it, I'm like, wait a second, is this someone I really actually want right. to have an hour long conversation with? <laughs> Maybe it's not. Um, and, and so I get it. I'm wondering like, how do, how do we stop people from going toward that? If that's part of the reason they're in the position they're in, because you even mentioned a lot of these companies are not incentivizing them on the amount that they're closing. They're incentivizing them on the amount that they retain. So, right. so how do we, yeah, how do we help reimagine that for, for people as they're selling? Well, one thing is I don't think that we spend enough time between marketing and sales talking about what does a good fit customer look like? What makes a good fit customer? So that sales can help recognize like this isn't a deal worth chasing. Um, the, the other thing is that I think, you know, ideally you've got marketing doing a really good job of only passing the stuff to sales that we think is a reasonably good fit. Um, but then I think we need to, we need to, we need to really actually deeply understand the story of the product and the story of the product that says, look, this product solves a problem. And there's lots of ways to solve that problem. We are not the only product on the market that solves that problem. But if you need X, Y, and Z, and that's really important to you, then we're the best possible solution. If you don't need X, Y, and Z, maybe you should pick someone else. <laughs> and I think arming the rep with the confidence to be able to clearly articulate that and say, look, we are not the solution for everybody. Like if you just want the cheapest thing, we're not the cheapest thing you know, and so we're not the cheapest thing. Or if you just want, you know, the thing with the most bells and whistles, we're not the thing with the most bells and whistles, but we are the thing that's going to allow you to do A, B, C. Now let's talk about that. Do you really care about A, B, C? And if you do, then I can, then I can sell you on how we're the best at A, B, C, but we need to be able to arm the reps so that they have the confidence to be able to say, this one wasn't a good fit. They didn't care about these three things. We're the best at these three things what they want are three other things that we're not the best at. We should let that one go. It's and the so more I let those go, the more I open up time to actually talk to people that do care about these three things. Cause these are the deals I can win. So I know you live in this business to business world um, most of the time, but as I hear you talk, it is so relevant for my business. And it's interesting. You talked about Thank branding you. earlier because I did a massive branding effort. I hired a great company oh, and yeah? they did a ton of work from getting research from current clients, people in my pipeline, uh, other people that know me. And they came back and they said, Brian, your people trust you. <laughs> they believe in you. They think you're authentic. They think you really care about them. And I was like, really, that's it. They don't like the theories and the frameworks and all this other <laughs> stuff that we work on. And then the other thing that they say is I hear from my clients all the time, like, Brian, you're really good at sales. And I was always kind of offended by that. I was like, well, I'm not a salesperson. I'm a coach. Um, but as I think more about it, I think, well, like what is sales? Sales is the ability to look someone in the eye and say, no, this isn't good for you. And right. this is good for you. And here's what I can do to try to help you. And you have uh, a lot of exercises in your book. And I encourage people to check out your book because I think they can literally take the questions that you ask and fill them out for themselves, regardless of their industry. I did that myself. And one of the questions you said, who are your best customers? And I wrote down eight executives, eight. And I've worked with far more than eight. Um, but these are my best executives. And right. who are they? They are people that are lifelong learners. They're super curious. They are organized. 
they refer people, they refer great people, they pay on time, they don't complain about how much they pay, they don't think about my <laughs> right. work. Because they get the value. They get the value. Don't, they don't even ask about ROI. They don't talk about ROI. Because my work, if you ask me what's the ROI of coaching, I don't know the answer to that. I legitimately have no way to quantify that. And if someone's yeah. looking for ROI, they should probably hire a consultant who is going to help them in that. If, if they're looking for an ROI, they should hire you. And you can tell them, well, based on the positioning, if we change the positioning and you're this type of size company and we figure out how to reposition it, and then this is the potential of the company, then we can create that. That's not my gig. That's not my bag. So I am going to call April and say, hey, April, is this something you might be interested in? And I will make that happen. But I think asking who are your best customers yeah. is such a big piece of the puzzle. And it's scary at first because the truth is I had to say yes to everything in the beginning. Anyone right. that wanted to work with me, I said yes to. And I don't regret that. I had to do that to figure out who are the best customers. Exactly. I think sometimes we say, like, I love what your book said was, no, you don't have to stay niche in the beginning. Go explore, go spread your wings, go far out. And then you can narrow the scope and figure it out. And so it's been interesting for me because my whole career I've spent, yes, 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 yes. And I would say in the last year, year and a half was finally, I'm going to say no to certain opportunities because it may be good tomorrow, but it's not going to be good six months from now. And I don't want that six months from now. So what you're talking about for me, it's probably the timing of when I read it. It, it really hit the nail on the head, but I think where you are depends on how you should approach what a best customer looks like. Um, so right. I went on a riff, a rant, whatever you want to call that. No, I love it. I love it. But was it, and was that like, like, so that's a thing that I work with a lot in my clients is like thinking about this idea of who's a good fit. Like when we're doing positioning, what's the goal of it? The goal is I want to make it really clear, you know, what I do, what I'm awesome at, you know, if I'm talking about the product, what the product does, you know, who it's for, what it's awesome at, in a way that attracts a pipeline full of these best fit people, you know, imagine what it would look like if the only conversations you were having were with these people that are your best fit customers. And what would your life be like if all you got was best fit stuff? So, so let's work on that. Now, at the beginning, like you say, you don't really know who's your best fit. So the beginning, I think you got to kind of cast a wide net, say yes to everything, do lots of different things, find out, you know, sell to everybody. But then once you've got a first wave of customers through, you can look at that and say, well, who's really a good fit? Who's really happy? Who closed really fast? Who didn't ask me for a discount? Who's still happy now? Who refers me to everybody? And look at those and say, well, what's the common thread amongst those and that should inform your marketing. And then you say, okay, well, what I'm actually looking for is people that are like this. So where do I get in front of a bunch of people that are like this? What does my advertising need to look like to attract them in? What should my marketing look like? What should my messaging look like? Where do they cluster these people? <laughs> you know, like, do they go to certain events? Are they interested in certain things? Can I go intercept them somewhere? And then I go there and then my hit rate's going to be way higher instead of just trying to market to everybody on the planet. I'm trying to focus my efforts on these folks that I know are going to love my stuff because they fit the profile. It's interesting. We had on the podcast a guy named Scott O'Neill and Scott was the CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers and New Jersey Devils. Mm. He recently left. And I said to him, like, how do you know someone's a good fit for your organization? I said, Brian, I don't, I don't talk about fit. I talk about alignment. I talk about mm. alignment of values. 
Because if I'm looking for fit, then everyone's going to look like me. They're going to sound like me. They're going to talk like me. And that's not what I want in the room. I want diversity and I want people from different walks of life and perspectives. And so as I'm hearing you talk about fit and then earlier you're talking about alignment, it's an interesting distinction because for me, I think what I've drawn more toward who aligns with my values, who aligns with, you know, are they competitive? Are they driven? Are they ambitious? Are they genuine? Um, And those things, are they curious? And when clients have those things, what they do for a living matters. It it doesn't really matter for my line of work. They can be in tech, they can be in real estate, they can be in nonprofit. It it doesn't matter because their exploration with me is going to be, it's going to work because of the values that they possess and and the alignment is there. As you think about alignment and fit, it's interesting because products are different than services. You're really looking for a product fit that is going to unlock something within that company. I'm looking for alignment of values that's going to unlock themselves. It's an individual versus a uh, thing. Am I onto something there? Am I understanding yeah, that? Yeah, sort of. Like, you know, it's funny. So I've done work with folks that do um, professional services as opposed to products. And for the most part, it's people that are like tech adjacent. So I've done a lot of companies that what, what they do is custom development work. So, you know, you need you, you need product, but it needs to be custom for you. So they, you know, there's a team of developers. We're going to build something custom for you. And it's interesting that the hardest part in the positioning of that is, you know, when we're talking about products, we can say, well, who do you compete with? And then what have you got that the competitors don't have? And how does that translate to value? And that'll get me to, here's the differentiated value. Here's you can, what you can do for a business that competitive alternatives can't do. When we're talking about professional services, it's, it's pretty easy to determine who your competition is. But then when you get to this, well, what have you got that the competitors don't have? It's not as cut in stone. Like, you know, in products, it's like either the feature exists or it doesn't. If it's professional services, it's a bit like, well, you know, we could hire somebody that knows how to do that. But, you know, it's kind of infinite, the things that we could do. And so in the work I'm doing with clients like that, we're really more focused on, yeah, but are you good at it? <laughs> do you have expertise in that? Could you prove that you have expertise in that? And do you really think you're the best at that? Like, do you think you can do that better than better than all these competitors over here? Like better than, so, and, and so what exactly are you really, really good at? Like, why should people pick you over anyone else? Like, what does that look, what does that combination of things look like? So like even in building my own business, you know, like when I first started in consulting, I'm an ex-VP marketing, you know, worked at a bunch of big companies and I decide, okay, now I'm going to be a consultant. And at the beginning, I was like, well, I don't really know what my offering is. Like, what am I selling here? I'm like, what's my position? Yeah, (laughs) I'm just selling my brain. And at the beginning, I was like, I don't really know what it is. So I'm just going to do a bunch of stuff and let's just figure it out. So I did a bunch of things and people would come and say, hey, can you help me with lead gen? I'd say, yeah. Hey, can you help me with messaging? Yeah. Hey, can you help me with positioning? Usually the messaging stuff ends up, you know, we end up working in positioning because that's really what the problem is. Or can you help me with sales or whatever? So we get all these things. And I did a bunch of these projects and two things became clear. One, like it was hard for me to charge for a lot of that stuff because frankly, there's a thousand other consultants that can do it just as good as I can. 
So why pick me? There, there was no reason to pick me. There's lots of ex-VPs of marketing around that are born to be in the VP that want to be a consultant. There's, there's hundreds of us, like they're everywhere. And, and it was only a very small number of things that I could point at, which is really what got me really centered on this positioning stuff. Like positioning was the one thing where one, I had an awful lot of experience that I could point to and say, look, now I've repositioned dozens of products in the market. And there's not a lot of VP marketing out there that could say that. And the second thing was, I have a methodology and I can teach you how to do it. Because, you know, even just because you're doing it doesn't mean you're doing it with any sort of repeatability. <laughs> so, so my own business got very focused on that. Well, then you ask the question, well, who cares about that? Like, who's my target? Well, there's only certain points in a company's life, really, where positioning becomes a really big deal. And so usually what you've got is a company um, grows to a certain point and then hits kind of a plateau where they can't get past it because they've gotten that far on sales acumen or, you know, they kind of got lucky in the positioning uh, but then they're stuck. And for tech companies, there's usually a plateau around five, 10 million revenue where getting past that is actually really hard. You have to be able to actually train your salespeople how to do the pitch really well. You have to get really good at your marketing engine for driving leads. And usually if the positioning is mushy, you can't make it past that. Uh, so at the beginning, I was really focused on companies at about that stage because that's where you really feel this pain of positioning. You're trying to expand in sales and marketing. But then as I got working through those clients, another kind of client sort of popped up, which is the big, big company that has a weird positioning problem. And usually it results from, I'm a big company. I've acquired a bunch of little companies. And now I got to go out to the market and tell the story about how this stuff all comes together into a solution. And that's hard. <laughs> People, when so I was, now I'm selling you a lot of companies that look like that too. But when I was doing research on you, I thought your expertise was more in repositioning rather than positioning. Is that, am I just being? It's kind of the same thing. I mean, we're positioning whether we're doing it consciously or not. Mm. Like anything that we're selling, we're, we're positioning it in a way. Mm. It, maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. So positioning <laughs> is always, it's always an evolving thing. It's Well, that's you're, it. You're always repositioning because it was interesting. You talk about working in startups. And so I was thinking, all right, if I have an idea, I need to mm. think about the positioning and go through the process. And I could see how that would be really helpful. But a lot of the, the times, if I have an idea, I don't have any money, uh, I might go raise money, but I'm trying to think of like, your role is often coming in to say, all right, you have a positioning problem. Let's right. come, let's re, I thought of it as like repositioning and, and maybe that's just nuance and words. But as I heard you, it was a lot of, hey, my problem that I'm solving is to help you solve your positioning problem. Um, right. which I thought was fascinating. And the most interesting thing takeaway for me from the book was a very simple line, which makes sense, which is it's better to be boring than baffling, which I think was toward the end of the book. <laughs> Can you riff on that for a little bit? Better to be boring than baffling. Yeah. So I do think that people can overthink their positioning. And, and I do think that we can get maybe a little bit too flowery and creative in our messaging where we get to the point where people come to the website and they're like, what the heck is this? I just don't get it. <laughs> 
I think the first question that we have to answer in the minds of customers is what is this thing, right? The second question is like, is it important to me? So the first thing we have to do is say, it's, it's a this. <laughs> this is what it is. <laughs> and there's a big difference between saying it's a marketing consultant versus it's a positioning consultant for B2B growing tech companies. On the first one, I say, well, I'm a marketing consultant. You show up and you're like, oh, good. So you can help me with my branding problem. Oh, good. You can help me with lead generation. Oh, good. You can help me with, you can help me with freaking anything, <laughs> right? But if I'm a CEO of a B2B tech company that has a positioning problem, I land on that site and I go, maybe you can help me. Maybe you can't. Sounds like you do all kinds of things. You certainly don't sound like you're a specialist in positioning, do you? Whereas that same prospect comes to my site and says, all right, <laughs> I'm the positioning lady. My background is this, you know, I only do B2B tech companies. I mainly do B2B tech companies of this size that you come in there and you're left with like, wow, like the, I, I should hire her. She's amazing at this thing. So it repels the people that are not a good fit for my work. Um, and it really attracts the people that are a good fit for my work because everybody I'm competing with is positioning as sort of general marketing, consulting, whatever. Oh, we would do positioning, but it's one thing on a list of 50 things that we do. Uh, you come to me because you're, you know, you've got a problem. You know what the problem is. You need the specialist. Um, that enables me to charge a lot more money. You'll pay a lot more money to work with me because the, you're getting this very, very specialist expertise. So I want to just riffing. I don't even know. No, no, no. I want to dive into the specialist idea <laughs> and the concept around it. I remember when I was in grad school for sports psychology and they said, what's your niche? What's your sport? I said, I, I don't know. I, I mm. sport psychology. I think that's a niche, isn't it? Isn't that a psychology niche? It's the sport part. Uh, we're limiting our clients to athletes. Um, and then I went on and I worked with every kind of athlete you ever would have imagined. Uh, mm. And then same thing in the executive world, as I said earlier, like I've worked with every kind of executive you can imagine. And then with this podcast, I, you know, we were talking before I have interviewed astronauts, you know, nonprofit leaders, um, athletes, coaches, business people, you, you name it. I like to interview if, if it's someone that I haven't interviewed in an in industry, I want to have them on more so than the ones that I've already had on. Um, and so it's interesting because I come from a sports background and in the NBA, the National Basketball Association, today, the game, if you watch any NBA game, every team runs a similar offense. They're all shooting a lot of three pointers and they're all trying to get to the foul line where they can get free throws or get layups. So the game has really changed because of the analytics movement and what has been considered a good shot and a bad shot. But I start to think, well, all right, those are considered good shots and bad shots, but what if the defense is now only playing to cover for three-point shots and layups? What about that whole rest of the world that's available for buckets? Uh, and I think the same thing in, in my business world. I think because I haven't been niche, perhaps there are people that like my sports background for sure and performance background, yeah. but I can spread to this, these other worlds and explore. And I find my work to be diverse and interesting. And I don't get sick of talking about the same thing over and over again. And I'm energized by it 10 years into 10 plus years of being a coach. I love creating new things and working with new clients. So is there any benefit to not being niche? Because in the marketing world, if I listen to marketing experts, they're all saying, 
No, find your niche, do your thing, position yeah. yourself as an expert in that niche. But I've done it a completely different way. And look, I'm yeah. privileged. I've got an amazing network. I have relationships. I'm not going to sit here and say that I haven't had to step up in a lot of different ways. But my whole experience has always been to go toward things that interest me, that excite me, and then be honest and authentic about the value that I can provide, the value that I can't. And yeah. so far, it's working out. Uh, it could always get taken out from under me. Yeah. But that's sort of been the approach. Yeah. Well, see, here's the thing. So, so there's two things to think about. So one is, um, often I get companies come to me and they'll say, you know, we don't, we're, we're not focused on a particular niche at all. Like we, you know, we sell to everybody, you know, we like everybody. And I go, okay, good, fine. Uh, so let's talk about your best fit customers. Then we, you know, we'll go back to that. Let's talk about who, who do you got that you really love? And so if, if we have that discussion about the best fit customers, they'll say, look, they, they don't have anything in common. Like some of them are in banking and some of them are insurance and some of them are retail, like, and they're looking for what people normally think is a niche, right? Like, and they, oh, we're going to niche into, you know, a particular industry. But then when you look at it, it, it does, they do have something in common. It just doesn't happen to be industry. So, or in your case, sport, right? Like, but there is a thing that's common. So in software, for example, sometimes we're selling a product that the problem is the same problem. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, but there's other conditions. So um, I'll give you an example. So um, I worked at a company and we sold this database integration thing. It was like a thing. If you had lots of data in lots of places, we could bring the data together and back it up and do some good data stuff for you. And if we looked at our best fit customers, um, there wasn't what there wasn't a particular industry. Like we didn't, you know, we sold a little bit to retail, a little bit to banking, a little bit. We had a bunch of utilities that were good. But when we really dug down in it, there were a couple of common things. So one was we were really good at, at this one particular esoteric weird system. If you had one of these, nobody else could make it work with one of these. <laughs> and we were really good at that. <laughs> and we just assumed everybody else did that. But when we looked at our competition, it turned out they didn't. So one of the reasons people picked us is, oh, you got a lot of data or whatever, but you, you, you've got this box over here and nobody knows what to do with it because it's a weirdo thing. Oh, we can handle that. So that was the first thing was if you had one of these boxes, we, you know, we were definitely going to beat anybody else that came. And then, the, and then the second thing was we had a feature that allowed you to do a particular kind of backup thing really fast. So if you needed really fast backup, then that was good for us. Now, that didn't have anything to do with the industry, although sometimes it did. Like retail, if the thing went down, you wouldn't be able to sell anything. And that's very bad for business. So they had to do this backup thing really fast. If the thing went down, we had to be able to get it back up really fast because business we can't check anybody out the cash register if this thing is down. The other one, utilities, same thing. Oh, the power's out. We need to get the power back up right away. So even though those two industries looked very, very different, this particular feature that we had was very, very important to the two of them. So then when we went to talk to investors and they say, well, what's your niche? What are you focused on? We'd say, 
Well, we're focused on companies that have data that's all over the place, including weird esoteric systems like this one. And they have this requirement to be able to, if anything goes down, bring it up really fast. And so utilities has got that, whatever has got that. A lot of other things didn't, right? Manufacturing, they just didn't have those same requirements. So we didn't sell to them. <laughs> so in your case, it's possible that if you, if you pulled out all your best fit customers, you would actually see a common thread, but the common thread isn't necessarily the sport. Um, and maybe even necessarily, you know, sports versus non-sports, but the common thread is something else, right? Like maybe their values or maybe something else. So that's one thing. Here's the other thing. Sometimes it's just not all about growth. <laughs> like sometimes it's just not all about the money. Like, you know, so, so I have a set of requirements of who I think is a, a really good client for me. And there's all the things about the business, you know, like, like I do a little test with you to see whether I think your problem is really positioning and not just marketing or sales. So you got to have that. You got to be B2B. You got to be a certain size. You got, you know, so there's the big checklist of things. But my last check mark is, are you kind of a jerk? <laughs> because if you are, I've already, I've already filled my quota of that. <laughs> I've worked with them enough and I'm not going to work with any people like that anymore. And so I cross a lot of people off my list just because of that. I don't want to spend a week with you. Sorry. <laughs> I love that. And it, it's clear you have laughed, I think, more than any guest that we've had on for the you know, <laughs> I just got back from vacation. I'm well, maybe good. it's you're just fresh, yeah. but like, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't think that's true because I listened to your conversation with Joe and you laughed all the time and you have a lightness to you and a laughter to you, but you also are very intentional. And, and there's also, uh, competence that you speak to that is is really clear and very in, very intentional and it's interesting. So you give us that checklist of things to see whether or not a client is going to be a good client. I went onto your your Instagram and I saw a post from March eleventh, twenty twenty. You're in Ireland at a conference, and <laughs> this is like ten minutes before COVID hit. And I'm and I and I'm at a speaker dinner in Ireland with no mass or anything else, and and it was my last time traveling for like a year. The and last a half. supper, right? And yeah. uh, and so I'm curious. As I saw that picture, it had me thinking. Wow, like it's kind of crazy. She was even forecasting like I'm probably going to shut it down for a little bit here. I don't think we envisioned shutting it down to 2022. Um, but that's a conversation for another day. No. Uh, but, but I'm curious for you, as you think about that checklist of what makes a great client, what are some things that you do to make sure that you're at your best, especially over the last couple of years where things have been challenging for pretty much any human? Um, what do you do to make sure that you're still, you're, you're light, uh, competent, um, laughing self? Uh, what are things that <laughs> fill your bucket? Yeah, well, I'll tell you the, the original when when COVID first hit, uh, I was before COVID, I did all my workshops face to face. So I would get on a plane and fly to you. We would we get ourselves into a, a conference room with a whiteboard and we do it together. And so when COVID first hit, I had a whole bunch of workshops planned and I just called everybody and canceled them. And I said, look, I'm looks like I'm not traveling and I don't know how to do this over a zoom call. So you're, you're canceled. <laughs> Just canceled everybody. And clients didn't know what was going on. Everybody was, you know, this was March, 2020. Nobody knew what was going to happen. 
So we all just canceled. And so for a few weeks, I sat at my desk and went, I wonder what I'm going to do now. <laughs> am I going to keep doing this or am I going to do something else? And while I was having that conversation with myself, you know, at the beginning, we all thought it'd be over in six months. And I thought, maybe I'll write another book or something, you know, because there's not going to be a lot of work. Uh, and then I had a client call me up and say, can we just try it over Zoom? Like, let's just do it over Zoom. And I said, okay, but I'm not going to charge you much because I don't know if it works. Um, and then we did it and it was pretty good. And then I had a, an absolute avalanche of people calling me. So what happened was COVID impacted a lot of people's businesses and a lot of people had to reposition as a result of that. And so I went from thinking I was going to take six months off to trying to jam a workshop into every available day I had for the next six months. And so I ran like that for six months and that was bad. <laughs> and at the end of that, I was not laughing April by the end of that six months, let me tell you. And so I think before I had been limited in the amount of work that I could actually do because I was flying and th th there was just sort of a natural limitation there. But then when I switched to doing things virtually, I could do, you know, triple four times the amount of work that I was doing before because I never had to leave my house. But then I did it and it was terrible. Like it was just too much work. So I, after that six months, I took a big step back and I, re, I retooled the business basically um, in terms of um, how, how many of these workshops I take on at a time and how much space I give myself in between workshops. And um, I put my rates way up because I was booking so far in advance, it was getting ridiculous. So I thought, why am I not raising my rates? And so I raised my rates um, and, uh, and, uh, and all of that's been really good for my, you know, just my ability to be able to do this work and still find it really fun and not be completely overwhelmed with it and have it just eating up my entire life, which it did for about six months. It was not good. But now I think I'm back in a really good place. We'll see. Well, maybe we'll have a call next January, 2023, I think is the year. Yeah. Uh, I got to check myself on that. Um, and we'll see if you're still laughing April. So that's, yeah, be we'll a, see. A we'll see. Maybe I'll be like, Oh man, pipelines dried up. Oh, <laughs> what do up. I do? Um, I don't know. Hey. I'm booked at, right now. I'm booked until the fall next year. Oh. So it's a neat place to be in that you can be kind of relaxed, you know, your year's made already. And, uh, and you can just focus on doing the work and be really, really good at doing the work, not worry too much about pipeline building. You know, this is the first year in my career. This is, I guess, year 11 where that's the case. And uh, I have it scheduled. I have my clients booked out for the next six months. And then I have everything else calendared for six months after that. And man, it, it is a liberating feeling and yeah. um, it's, it's, it's a whole different story for another day. But April, uh, this has been really fun. I've enjoyed learning from you. I enjoyed the book. I just want to give you a megaphone to promote the book, to promote uh, anything else that you want to promote. Obviously you're, you're in good shape as far as work is concerned. Um, but if people want to learn more about you, they can certainly go to your website, aprildunford.com. I know there's a bunch of good stuff there. Is there anything else that you want to share social media, uh, nonprofits that you're passionate about anything, <laughs> the Canadian flag, since I know you're up North and people didn't, couldn't tell from, from yeah little, no little not answer. really i mean the, the book is if you want to learn more about this stuff the book is designed as an easy read to kind of get your head around it or, or even try to do a positioning exercise yourself without having to hire a consultant 
um, to do it yourself. So I think the book is a really good place to start. I'm doing an online course, which I haven't actually announced it yet. So, you know, here's, here's an announcement, Breaking for you. News. but, um, <laughs> but uh, with these folks called section four. And so they're this kind of new online education startup. And so I'm doing a positioning class with them that launches in April, I think. So that that'll be a new thing for me. We just, we just shot a lot of video on that. It'll be fun to see it in its final form, but yeah, it, it's designed as a companion to, to the book to help go a little bit deeper and a little get a bit more practical on how to actually apply this stuff. So it's mainly designed for people at again, B2B tech companies, which is kind of my jam. Um, but I think we'll, you know, I think we'll see, see people in that course from beyond that as well, that are just trying to get deeper on the concepts. Fantastic. I mentioned Instagram, which you're on, and then Twitter, I know, is another place that you Twitter's also play. really the only one where I spend any time. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> I do LinkedIn. Truth. I do LinkedIn, but Twitter, you're at April Dunford. At uh, April Dunford. I know every year I say, I should do some stuff on LinkedIn, and then I go on LinkedIn, and I'm like, Oof. I don't know. I like LinkedIn and Twitter. Those are the two places that I've found. I struggle on Instagram, even though we've got intentional underscore performers there, but um, Twitter, Twitter is is definitely my jam from a social media perspective. And then LinkedIn just found it's a, if you do it the right way, it can be a great place to connect with people. Um, But anyone that wants to listen to any more of these conversations, they can do so at strongskills.co slash podcast. April, thanks a lot. Appreciate you. Happy new year. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I want to make it really clear, you know, what I do, what I'm awesome at, you know, if I'm talking about the product, what the product does, you know, who it's for, what it's awesome at, in a way that attracts a pipeline full of these best fit people. You know, imagine what it would look like if the only conversations you were having were with these people that are your best fit customers. And what would your life be like if all you got was best fit stuff? So so let's work on that. Now, at the beginning, like you say, you don't really know who's your best fit. So at the beginning, I think you got to kind of cast a wide net, say yes to everything, do lots of different things, find out, you know, sell to everybody. But then once you've got a first wave of customers through, you can look at that and say, well, who's really a good fit? Who's really happy? Who closed really fast? Who didn't ask me for a discount? Who's still happy now? Who refers me to everybody? 